Turn in your Bibles, if you would, to the Gospel of Mark, chapter 9. We're going to continue our study through this Gospel. Again, we are not touching on every verse. Um, for example, today, I am choosing to skip over the transfiguration. The truth is the transfiguration is monumental in the Gospels. Uh, we don't find it in the Gospel of John, but we do find it in what's called the Synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And But I preached on that topic several times, and so what I am going to be doing, though I may reference it, I am moving on to the next story, and this has to do with the incident that takes place when Jesus with Peter, James, and John come down from the mountain and encounter what we're about to read. You know, when I grew up, uh, there were six kids, five boys, one girl. I was near the tail end. I was number five. And <laughs> I was just this type of kid that always got in fights. Uh, I got in fights in my home. I would fight my bigger brothers and not be intimidated, uh, though they crushed me all the time. Um, literally, my brother older than me, you've seen him. His nickname is The Hulk. He's not green, but he is six four and a half, and he weighs about 350 pounds. Um, he didn't weigh that much in high school, but he was a big dude to deal with. Uh, I wrestled him more when he was younger than high school. I think I kind of grew out of that. But the truth is, even on recess, on the playground, I was constantly in fights. I, I knew the principal by his first name. I had a mug, coffee mug, in the principal's office because I visited it so much. Okay, no, I didn't drink coffee back then. Post him, anybody here? Anyway, and so and I'm sharing this with you because God was, in, God was allowing, through some bad circumstances, to make me a fighter. And he's done this in some of you in being a fighter, though not on the playground. Um, but in real life, God is training us to be fighters. I remember an incident when I was in seminary in which God called me to fight, and I felt like Rocky in the 15th round, okay? Black and blue in the face, gut punches throughout the 15th round. I just wanted to fall on the canvas. There were a number of things that happened, and I'm just going to be brief with them. But the first one was when I was trying to cross four lanes of traffic. The light was installed, but it was covered with plastic, so it had not been uh, started yet. And it was a rainy or drizzly Saturday morning. And as I looked both ways, I apparently did not catch a good view of the traffic coming to my left. And with my wife next to me, Kate and Juliana behind me, and another young lady from our church behind, directly behind me, I crossed those four lanes of traffic. I managed to get into the second lane before I was T-boned by another car. Glass shattered everywhere. My car, it, the, the impact was more in my door, and it, I remember it hitting me. The church members of our church came and cooked a meal for us. We, we were fine, but we were just shaken up, and it was just, it was difficult. And I just thought to myself, you know, our car was totaled. When I went to look, get our stuff from the car in the, uh, in the junkyard, the guy looked at me, and, and he said, is that your car? And you could see the whole side crush, and he said, dude, you are lucky to be alive. And he just showed me how the car had impacted, where it had impacted to absorb it, and then jutted up into my door. He said, if that didn't happen, you would be dead today. And 
as things in, in life quickly proceeded, and the numerous things happened in the space of about two months, Juliana, as we were visiting a family, was playing near a fireplace, and I believe it was her and not Kate, and they fell, and they fell right next to the poker and almost got speared by this poker, and my wife just emotionally freaked out and just, you know, what is going on here? We had been experiencing financial troubles. I'm trying to make it through seminary, and we feel like our money is being robbed from us. We had a plan. You know, it's great to plan, but the Lord's will prevails. And we're just kind of wondering, God, what is your will here? Because, I mean, if you're for me, it doesn't look like it, okay? And I just remember my, Meredith telling me, Mike, we, we've got to do something. We, we have to rise up. The enemy is attacking us, and we feel like we can't escape. Have you ever felt that? Have you ever felt like it's been one thing after another, and you're trying so hard to either run away from those problems, to protect yourself, or your family, your finances, your friends, to be able to do battle, and yet everything you do comes at you 100 miles an hour, overpowers you, knocks you down, and God is bringing you, as he brought me, to this place of just really brokenness and seeking God. Now, I'm going to come back to this story. But I want to ask you, what are you facing today? What opposition is opposing you today? What is forcing you into God to be able to cry out to him and see him do something absolutely miraculous. God is our way maker. God, where are you? And sometimes we look around and it's a desert and we just have to say, God, build a highway in this desert. Make a way where there seems to be no way. That song, by the way, was sung, was a very popular song. God makes a way when there seems to be no way was a very popular song in that day, and I remember that song becoming so precious to us. God, I don't understand what's going on, but I have to stand up against the enemy. How do I do this? God had trained me as a little boy. Maybe I shouldn't say God did it, but to be a fighter, and yet I did not feel like a fighter then. I want us to look at this story in Mark chapter 9. And I want us to focus on what Mark chooses to focus on. It's a story that's actually recorded in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Luke treats it very briefly, though he has a purpose. We're going to see that purpose a little bit more next week, though we're going through the book of uh, Gospel according to Mark. I'm going to be looking a little bit at Matthew today. But I want to see what does Mark focus on because Mark says certain things that the other writers don't. And whenever you read a gospel story and you see these things that only that gospel writer records, that is purposeful. And it is generally because he's wanting to say something and look at this story and teach us something that's going to be a little bit different than what the other gospel writers are recording. He doesn't change the story in any way. He, as an eyewitness, well, Mark, it was Peter who shared the story with John Mark, and he recorded it. But Peter sees it then from a different perspective than Matthew and Luke. And so as a result, he is teaching us something different. So this story that I'm about to read to you is about a little, well, I don't want to say a little boy, but a young man, probably a teenager. He's called a boy. But 
he is demonized. It makes him deaf and mute, and his father just does not know what to do. The disciples cannot cast this demon out, and so Jesus does. So the focus is Jesus bringing deliverance. Mark, though that's the main focus of the story, Mark highlights certain things. So consequently, my sermon is not about casting out demons and such, but it's very relevant in our day. My focus is going to be, I believe, what Mark's focus is and what he is trying to teach us through this. So are you with me there then? Mark chapter 9, I'm going to start, excuse me, in verse 14 and read through verse 29. So again, they're coming down from the Mount of Transfiguration, Jesus, Peter, James, and John. The rest of the disciples that they talk about would be the other nine. Verse 14, when they came to the other disciples, they saw a large crowd around them and the teachers of the law arguing with them. As soon as all the people saw Jesus, they were overwhelmed with wonder and ran to greet him. What are you arguing about? Excuse me, what are you arguing with them about? He asked. A man in the crowd answered, teacher, I brought you my son who is who has a demon, excuse me, I'm, I don't like this rendition of possessed by a spirit. That's not what the Greek says. The spirit does not possess him. He possesses a spirit. That's how the Greek reads. So he has a spirit that has robbed him of speech. Whenever it seizes him, it throws him to the ground. He foams at his mouth, gnashes his teeth, and becomes rigid. I asked your disciples to drive out the spirit, but they could not. Oh, unbelieving Generation, Can you just underline that phrase? You're going to see that Mark purposely records Jesus' words this way. Unbelieving generation, Jesus replied, how long shall I stay with you? How long shall I put up with you? Oh, can you just hear a little bit of frustration in Jesus' voice? But he is so patient, he says, bring the boy to me. So they brought him. When the Spirit... Understand, the spirit saw Jesus. It immediately threw the boy into a convulsion. He fell to the ground and rolled around, foaming at the mouth. Jesus asked the boy's father, how long has he been like this? He asked. He asked. From childhood, he answered. It has often thrown him into fire or water to kill him. But if you can do anything, take pity on us and help us. If you can, said Jesus. Now listen to this. Underline this. Highlight it. Everything is possible for him who believes. Immediately, the boy's father exclaimed, I do believe. Help me overcome my unbelief. When Jesus saw that a crowd was running to the scene, he rebuked the evil spirit. You Deaf and mute spirit, he said, I command you, come out of him and never enter him again. Please understand that I read it that way purposefully. I do not believe Jesus said, you deaf and mute spirit, I command you, come out of him. And, you know, while you're at it, never enter him again. There is an authority with which Jesus addresses this demon. We need to see this. 
the spirit shrieked, convulsed him violently, and came out. The boy looked so much like a corpse that many said, he's dead. But Jesus took him by the hand and lifted him to his feet, and he stood up. After Jesus had gone indoors, his disciples asked him privately, why couldn't we drive it out? Jesus replied, this kind can come out only by prayer. And so you see this story unfolding, and we're going to see how the next story, the argument that they have leaving this scene, going to Galilee, to Capernaum specifically, and they have an argument about who's the greatest, we're going to see why that even is a question on their minds in view of this story and the Mount of Transfiguration. Peter, James, John, with Jesus, seeing the manifestation of his majesty in awe. They're, they're overwhelmed. And then they come down, and the other nine can't even cast out a simple deaf and mute spirit. And as this plays out, we read that the nine have failed to cast the demon out, and the father is left exasperated, helpless. He, he, his son, from childhood, so it's been a long time, his son has been having issues with this. Notice that Jesus does not ask him other questions than how long. I would want to know why the demon was there. What open door? Generally, demons are there because authority has been yielded. Jesus doesn't go there. And I would imagine he doesn't go, go there because he doesn't care. It is irrelevant. This father has come to the disciples because they're the representatives of Jesus, and they met a match that they could not handle. What? I'm going to come back to that. So they fail to cast the demon out. The father does not know what to do. He's wrestled with this issue with his son. He recognizes that it is not just epilepsy. This is a demon that has controlled the boy. And, this, and the father just, he, he comes to Jesus' disciples. Maybe they'll, obviously, really, he comes hoping to find Jesus, because that's what the text says. I brought him to you. Jesus obviously wasn't there. He was up in the mountain. And so the disciples said, you know what? We got this. And they apparently failed. They could not do it. Have you ever been there? Maybe not against a demon. Maybe a demon wrestling you. Maybe Satan himself buffeting you, coming against you, even as it, even as it did with me back in those days. And Throughout my, time, my walk with the Lord, there are seasons in which I just feel like the enemy is all about me. And I'm just wondering, God, what do I do here? Everything that I do, and I feel like I'm walking in your will, it comes to nothing. I want you to feel this sense of exasperation, not just from the dad, but the nine disciples. And maybe even yourself, as you have faced opposition that just would not go away. And, and, and you just cried out to God. And so Jesus himself 
casts the demon out. And when the disciples pull him aside and into a, a house, and he says, they asked him, Jesus, help us understand something here. We tried to cast this demon out, and we couldn't. I mean, at Jesus, do you remember? Now, Luke shares something that Mark does not necessarily. But before this incident, before the Mount of Transfiguration, he had sent his disciples, his 12 out, Luke 9, sends his 12 out, and he specifically gave them authority over all demons, all demons, including this type. Okay? Note that. So, Jesus, you, I'm kind of filling in here. Jesus, you gave us authority over, we saw demons cast out when, when you sent us out. We saw people healed. We anointed them with oil and they were healed. But we, why couldn't we do this? Why couldn't we cast this demon out? That's a legit question. Now, here's what Marx tells us that Jesus' re response was. This kind comes out only by prayer. Now, Matthew focuses on something different. We're, we're going to get to that in just a moment, faith. But here, G Mark records, excuse me, Jesus' other words specifically about prayer. Note he says this kind. I don't believe that he's talking about spirits that make people deaf and, and mute. That's not the type of spirit, kind, that he is wanting us to conclude. What he, the reason why Jesus asks how long has he had this spirit, the, the dad's response was since childhood. It's been there a long time. This, I believe, is what G, why Jesus asked the question. Ah, so this is a stubborn spirit. This has been enduring in this little boy's life until he is from childhood. Now, he's called a boy but that term can be applied to someone who is a teenager. So many years, and Jesus says, aha. Yes, this, in essence, this is not an easy demon to cast out. This kind comes out only by prayer. This kind. <coughs> Excuse me. Why prayer? Why does Jesus say focus on prayer here? Though he speaks of prayer in Matthew, we're going to see he speaks of faith, but why, why, why does he say prayer, and why does Mark choose to focus on that? Can I ask you, what is prayer to you? When you're facing opposition, some, maybe some similar situations that you've heard me share this morning, when you have faced opposition, what is prayer for you? Honestly, for many of us, prayer is merely like sitting on Santa's lap with our Christmas wish list. You know what, Jesus, I would, I would like this, and I would like this, and could you please do this, and could you please do this, and for a grand finale, I would like you to do this. And it is simply petition. Now, I am not discouraging in any way petition, but prayer, we're going to need to see prayer is so much more than our wish list. It is so much more than reading off this and this and this and this. Prayer is not like sitting on Jesus' lap with one request after another, though he asks us. In, in the scriptures, these are called petitions. He says, 
do you, do you struggle with being anxious? He says, prayer and petition with thanksgiving, present your requests to God. And the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. I am not in any way saying, get rid of your wish list. I'm not in any way saying, don't pray petitions. But there is something at the heart of petitions that we're going to need to see. Prayer is more than just this list. Prayer, number one, and there's three things I want to quickly point out here. Prayer is intimacy with the Father. Prayer is relational. I don't know if you ever went to a mall as a child and sat on, sat on Santa's lap. I think I may have. Um, we chose not to uh, talk about Santa Claus in, in our house and with raising our children, but I, I grew up with that. Um, and I think at least one time I sat on Santa's lap, but that is not prayer. Prayer goes so much deeper. I did not have a relationship with, with whoever was behind that mask. Sorry, if you believe in Santa Claus this morning and I just blew that concept out of your mind, I'm sorry for destroying. Anyway, it, it, that is not, it, it, is, it is more than that list. It is relational in nature. It is this intimacy with the Father. It is also, go one step further, prayer is dependency on the Father. See, that's what the that's the concept of petition. Why do you ask, Father, come and help me? Come into this situation. We see these types of things in the book of Psalms all the time, by the way. Come and intercede throughout the book of Acts. They spent all night in prayer that Peter would be released. They didn't just say, do this and this and this and this, and that'd be great. Thank you. They prayed fervently. Scripture says, earnestly prayed. There's a sense of desperation there and a pressing in and this sense of, God, if you do not come in and rescue Peter, his demise will be that of James who had been beheaded just a few days before. You got you to gotta do something here. God, please intervene. Not another apostle dead, martyred at the hand of King Herod. Please, God. And there's this sense that it's not just some Christmas wish list. It is, God, we are desperate, and we are completely dependent upon you. We, we, we can't do anything. And if you remember that story, God sent an angel into that prison cell. Peter's chains fell off, hands and feet. He stood up. The soldiers next to him remained asleep. He, the, the prison door that he was uh, 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 locked up in, he, that door opened up. He walked out of the prison. That gate opened up, and he went into the city unharmed, unnoticed. God stepped into Peter's life in response to the earnest prayers of the church. So prayer is building the sense of intimacy with the Father. It is being completely dependent upon the Father, and it builds faith. It builds faith. Now, <laughs> excuse me, Matthew chooses to focus on that. And if you want, you can go to Matthew chapter 17. I'm just going to read it to you. It says, then the disciples came to Jesus in private, just like Mark records, and asked, why couldn't we drive it out. Jesus replied, and I am sure that he mentioned prayer, but Matthew, in Jesus's response, focuses on this. 
because you have so little faith. I tell you the truth. If you have faith as small as a mustard seed, you can say to this mountain, move from here to there, and it will move. Nothing will be impossible for you. That is exactly what he told the son's father. If you just believe, nothing will be impossible for you. Now he brings it home in the context of just his disciples. Guys, listen to me. If you just believe, if you just have a, a faith as small as a mustard seed, you, can, you will be able to speak to the mountains and it will be removed. That is authority. But it is only the authority that Jesus had given them. Now, I have to admit, I have never seen a mountain move. I do not believe Jesus is using hyperbole here, exaggeration, because what? Guess what? God did move seas. He parted them. God did bring massive amounts of quail to his people in the wilderness. God can do anything, church. He created an entire world. And if he chooses to move a mountain through the mouth of his servant, because he wants to, that is not exaggeration, which is what hyperbole is. That is a fact. So let's understand Jesus is in the realm of reality here. You know what? If God's will is to move that mountain, he can do it. If God wants to move a mountain in your, now I'm speaking metaphorically, if God wants to move a mountain in your life, he can do it. He can do anything. Nothing will be impossible for you who believe. Now, the type of faith that, excuse me, the amount of faith that he's talking about is just a mustard seed. It is so small. Can you see how much this is? That's about how big it is, right? You see that? You probably don't because my fingers are so close. It is so small. You can hold a mustard seed. It is so small, like the head of a pen. Jesus' point here when he's saying to his disciples, his point is not that you don't have enough faith. That's the implication, though. You have so little faith. It seems like Jesus is saying, well, you just have to have more faith. Well, how, how much is a mustard seed? Can you get any smaller than that? Because apparently the, that's what the disciples had. He, see, that's not his point. Here, here's something interesting. If you were to compare Gospels, in some stories, Jesus you, you, the, the author uses this term, Jesus says to rebukes his disciples and say, the reason why this didn't happen is because you had no faith. When you read the same story in another gospel, Jesus says you have so little faith. I think it's fair to conclude. Jesus is equating no faith with little faith. Here, he is not saying that you have faith smaller than a grain of mustard. He is saying right now, in this moment, you have no faith. You have no faith. Yesterday or the day before, when you cast that demon out, guys, that was amazing. You stood in faith. Then the demon left because you stood in the authority that I've given you. Where's that faith today? It's not there. Little faith, note this, little faith, when it's used in the scriptures, means faith here today, excuse me, faith that was there yesterday, but is not there today. Doubt has crept in. Has that ever happened to you? 
that in the course of your life, you're a man or a woman of faith, and yet you feel like the devil has beaten you up, and you are despondent, and you're just saying, God, where are you? And I don't see your fingerprints anywhere in my life. Have you abandoned me? Where are you, God? There is this this destruction that's coming my way will surely devour me because apparently God is not for me. And we begin to stand on the doubts and the lies of the enemy. Let me tell you how it happened here. Because the, because the disciples stood on doubt and not faith. Here's something else that Mark points out that none of the other gospel writers do. When they come down from the mountain, Mark points out that Jesus immediately noted that the teachers of the law were arguing with those nine, uh, those nine apostles of his that stayed behind. The voice of the enemy arguing against them. I am sure that in the course of this discussion, which the teachers of the law would have made it a theological discussion. Oh, the disciples were like, I hear what you're saying, but you weren't there, and this was so cool, but Jesus gave us authority to cast out demons, and the teachers of the law, what? Get out of town. No, he didn't. Do you ever see Elijah casting out demons? Did you ever see even Moses casting out demons? You can't do that. Who do you think you are? You have the authority to do this? On and on, doubt, questions that we saw. If we're not careful, the questions can be legitimate. They can lead to doubt, which then turns to anger against God. Where are you, God? Frustration, and it begins to undermine faith so that when it came time to cast this demon out, there was no faith. Can I ask you, then how do you build faith? How do you get rid of that doubt? What does Mark focus on? This kind only comes out by what? Prayer. Prayer, okay. Well, Jesus, I didn't see you praying. When you came down from the mountain, you didn't suddenly remove yourself and pray and then come back. Can I just tell you this? this is, we didn't look at this last, you know, before. Jesus had already been in prayer. He, when he was on the Mount of Transfiguration, I believe it's Matthew, his focus is that Jesus had been praying. And in the midst of him praying, in the midst of this intimacy with the Father, in the midst of this complete dependence upon the Father, in the midst of this relationship building and sense of confidence in who he is sent from the Father, he is transfigured as the majestic Son of God, God, come in the flesh to be worshipped. And as we, we see the immensity, or, or the three apostles saw the immensity and the magnitude of the majesty of Jesus there, and it overwhelmed them. As a matter of fact, they were starting to fall asleep, Matthew tells us. It's either Matthew or Luke, excuse me. And they, they see this, and they wake up, they're startled. And Peter, in his days, uh, Jesus, after it's all done, how about if we build a shrine for you and Moses and Elijah? And, and Jesus probably does the, oh, you so miss it, Peter, one day. One day, I know you'll get it. And, 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 and Peter, no, this was all about Jesus, Peter. It wasn't about Elijah 
and Moses, they were talking about Jesus' death, his departure, it says. And they were ministering in this way to Jesus. And Jesus' glory was so unveiled before his apostles. The focus should have been on him. That's why a cloud came and the father spoke and said, this is my son in whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. So, Jesus, do you want us to build a shrine for you, Elijah, and Moses? Peter, don't you get it? The Son of God, hello. But Jesus had been in prayer. He had been building that intimacy with the Father. You know, when my wife and I faced these, and it was trial after trial, and I'm going to be honest with you, it was somewhere between five and ten things that happened. Boom, 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 and I shared only three with you pretty much because I can remember only three. But there was, it, it was overwhelming, overwhelming. It was like everywhere you turn, there was opposition. And we, were, we had this sense, we're afraid that the, that, that, that the other shoe would drop. You understand that expression? And, and, and we lacked faith. We felt like at every turn, at the next turn, that was going to be it. Which child would we lose? What, what tragedy awaits us? And we were filled with doubt and fear. And I just remember spending time in prayer. And my wife and I, we chose to fast and pray, much like we're doing this month. We chose to fast and pray. And we cried out to God that he would come through. I felt so utterly, completely helpless. No matter what I did, all that seemed to result was more tragedy. And I just remember day after day in fasting and praying, say, God, I can't do anything. Please, you be our defender. And I'm called as the head of my home to protect my family, and I can't do it. This is the only thing I can do to tell you how absolutely, utterly helpless I am that I can't do it. That's the best I can do. The only thing I can do is to say there's nothing I can do except pray and fast. I want to ask you, the opposition that you're facing, where is that driving you? The voice of the enemy that's whispering, God's not faithful. Is God really loving did God really say, just like in Genesis 3, undermining the truth of God? That's his goal. He wants to undermine the truth of God in your life. Who in this moment in your life, facing this struggle, who is God right now in your life? Mark tells us that Jesus said this kind only comes out by prayer. This opposition can only be overcome in prayer. Matthew, faith. Not just faith yesterday, but faith today. Small as a mustard seed. And you can speak to that mountain and it will be removed. Faith, prayer, intimacy with the Father.
And the devil wants to be that voice, like the teachers of the law, arguing, questioning, forcing you to doubt. And Jesus says, oh, unbelieving generation. The full expression Jesus actually used that we read in Matthew and Luke is, oh, unbelieving and perverse generation. That Greek word for perverse, by the way, doesn't mean perverted, like sexual perversion. It means that which is on the potter's wheel that with one little bump distorts the clay, twists it, distorts it, misshapens it. Oh, unbelieving and deformed generation distorted generation who doesn't understand the truth, helpless, who says to the Father, if you just believe, there's nothing that is impossible for God. That is a prophetic word to us today, church. Nothing, if you believe, nothing will be impossible for God in whatever he needs to do. In the opposition that you're facing today, right now, nothing will be impossible. We see a marvelous illustration of this in the Old Testament. Prayer. When you are at a place in which you feel beaten up, in which you feel is if you can't win, you, you can't come out on top. You will only be trampled under the feet of the enemy, the world, and anything else out there. This is what Esther went through. There had been an edict set in place by King Xerxes. She was the queen, by the way. And may I just add, one of many. She was part of a harem. She had not been called to the king an entire month. But the king had set in place an edict. That edict was going to allow for the slaughter of thousands and thousands of Jews. And Mordecai speaks to her through uh, a servant, messenger, back and forth. Esther, what are you going to do? You understand what the king's edict is. What are you going to do? And she says that basically there's nothing that I can do. The king hasn't called me for a month. I can't just walk in there, Mordecai. Mordecai's her uncle. I can't just walk in there. If I walk in to the throne room of the king, he will put me to death. That is his privilege. Do you not understand this, Mordecai? And Mordecai says, do you think that it's only the Jews out there that will die? Esther, you're a Jew. You too will die. This is not just about other people. This is about you. And if you refuse to stand in the gap for your people, God will raise up someone else. But do you not think that God has called you to this position for such a time as this? And Esther weighs this. And she sends back, tell all my people, to fast and pray for three days. And at the end of three days, I will go before the king. And if I die, then I die. But it's all on the line. And the Jews, they fasted and they prayed and cried out to God. They did what Jesus is suggesting. 
Esther approaches and stands in the throne room. And the king, Xerxes, sees her off in the distance on the other side of the hall. And he does not say, off with her head, take her out and put her to death. How dare you? He had every right to be able to do that. Instead, when he saw Queen Esther standing in the court, he was pleased with her. What boldness she had. What faith in God she had. Three days fasting and praying. And may I assure you that she did that too? So when he saw the queen standing in the court, he was pleased with her and held out to her the gold scepter that was in his hand. So Esther approached and touched the tip of the scepter. The king asked, what is it, Queen Esther? What is your request? Listen to this, church. Even up to half the kingdom, it will be given to you. I'm sharing this with you. Because when you feel as if there is nothing that you can do, no one to turn to, you have been praying, and you're so filled with doubt right now, understand this. That though King Xerxes is an evil king, I want to show him to you as an illustration of the father on his throne. And will you come into his throne room? I assure you he will extend his scepter to you. Jesus has made a way. Jesus has opened the door into the Holy of Holies where the very presence of God is. That is where we pray. That's why the altar of incense was right in front of the Holy of Holies where God dwelt. That's why when Jesus died on the cross, the veil of the temple was torn in two. We now are invited in by faith, by faith. And as we enter in, for Esther and the other Jews, three days fasting and praying. And as she came into the presence of the king, fear for her life. Now we move into the New Testament with my illustration. And the heavenly father extends the scepter. Jesus has made the way. I welcome you before my throne of grace for all of your needs. I want you to understand that the Father's heart is for you. That the Father longs for us to be in his presence. To have this intimacy with him broken on our face before God. With nowhere else to turn to. The Father would say to you, you are exactly where I need you. As you look to me, the only source in your life right now. I welcome you in. I extend the scepter. I will give you whatever you ask up to half of my kingdom. This is a picture of the inheritance that the father has given to you as his adopted son, as his adopted daughter, welcoming you into his holy of holies, into his presence in the heavenlies where we sit, scripture says in Ephesians 2, with Christ in the heavenly realms. When Jesus is sitting, he is sitting with authority. That is where you are, seated with Christ in the heavenly realms, in Christ Jesus.
up to half my kingdom is yours. They had fasted and prayed. They had no other recourse. When you're at that place, you are poised for God to do amazing miracles. This kind, this kind of opposition against you is only defeated, only defeated in prayer. Do you hear that? One last thing, and I'm going to be quick to conclude here, I hope. Mark also points one other thing out. And when I noticed this, I had to step back, and I, I just want to share with you how I view this. Only Mark says that this was a deaf and mute spirit. Is it incidental, or is it coincidental, or is there actually purpose? Let me say this, that Mark is, by the way, the only one that when he talks about what the demon is doing, tells us the intent. Luke says to destroy him. Mark reads to kill him. Our adversary wants to seal, kill, and destroy. You are in his bullseye. You are in his crosshairs. That's why this opposition comes. Mark says that the demons, that opposition is to destroy, is to kill. He calls him a deaf and mute. Can I just ask you this? Why, why does Mark choose to focus on this? Can I just bring us back a few stories earlier in which Jesus talked about the yeast of the Pharisees. The next miracle he did, he put spit on the man's eyes. The man opened his eyes and he could not see clearly. He saw men as trees. Jesus did it one more time and the man saw clearly. Mark chooses this story. No other gospel writer chooses this story, by the way. Mark chooses this story not just to teach us of the power of Jesus, but as I mentioned, he uses it as an illustration because Mark is teaching us something and he uses that story in the midst of it to show us that when the yeast of the Pharisees, the infection of unbelief and, and lies impacts us, we cannot see clearly. It's like Jesus has touched us, but we see men as trees. And we need to come to Jesus because the very next story is where Peter declares, Jesus, you are the Christ. You're the Christ. That's who I believe you are. And Paul, Peter was starting to see clearly. I believe that this is an illustration. Now, let me explain. And I, I really will try to be quick. I think Mark is using this and pointing out that this is a deaf and mute spirit for this reason. He's using it as another illustration, just like he did a chapter before. Can I ask you, when you are deaf and you cannot speak, what has just been cut off from your life? You can see. Now, I don't know if they used sign language back then. I, I, I'm not aware that they did. They can try and use signs, but they did not use sign language to my knowledge. What has been cut off from you is communication. You cannot speak and you cannot hear. And can I just tell you this, that when the enemy comes against you so severely in which you feel like everything I tried, just like the, the nine apostles, everything that we tried, it didn't work, Jesus. Why not? This is what the enemy is doing. 
He is cutting off all communication from you. He is trying to isolate you. He is trying to move you away from your relationship with God and your relationship with others, and there is no communication. There is no source of strength. You will lack faith. You may even be angry at God today because the devil's goal is to separate you. And we watched, Cole had us watch a, a, a little video some time ago, and I believe it's a wild, wildebeest, and a baby wild, the, 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 the herd had moved on, but the baby wildebeest had stayed behind and became prey to the lions as they began to attack that poor wildebeest, doing everything he could to defend himself. And if that was the end of the story, he would have absolutely died. Why? Because he had been cut off from the herd. But what happens? Do you remember? The herd comes to his rescue. And so ferociously that the lions run off scared. All right? This is what happens when we reconnect with God and with one another as they point us to him as our only source. This is what happens when we choose to pray, when we choose to step out in faith. We are saying, devil, you will not cut me off from the only one who is my help. You have lied to me that he has abandoned me. He has not. His faithfulness reaches to the heavens. He will never abandon me. He will never leave me or forsake me. I will stand on this truth. You are defeated, devil. And I want you to, in your life, if you're facing that type of opposition, intimacy with Jesus. Let him build your faith. Stand on the truth. And then I, I'm going to share with you that this this is what we, we did. And we stood on the truth. And I felt so helpless. And I was just like, okay, God. We've prayed. I cannot do any more. And day, as each day went by, I was like, wow. God has answered these prayers. There's finances. My children are okay. Actually, the person who T-boned our car started coming to our church, and the son rededicated his life. And God, the, the other shoe's not dropping. And I'm going to share something with you. It is a prophecy that was given almost immediately after this over my wife and I. An elderly gentleman, probably 70, 75. I do believe that there are prophets today. They are here until we all reach unity in the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God and become mature, attaining to the whole measure that's in Christ. If you want to understand New Testament prophecy, how it's different than Old Testament prophecy, I would encourage you. There's a sermon I preached, I guess it was back in August. Please listen to that. But this man's name was Laddie McDonough. He has since passed away. Laddie McDonough, as we had worshipped and the leaders, probably 60 of us, had come in. My wife and I had been working with the teams. We had been invited there, and he had been giving words over people, and I was just amazed. This man did not know these people whatsoever, and he spoke directly to their situations, and many times in great detail, extending hope and encouragement. And for the first time in my life, I saw the ministry of a prophet and he spoke with such encouragement from the word of God. And he called my wife and I forward. I'm not going to read the whole prophecy to you, but just the last paragraph. And this is what he said. He's praying over us now. 
And he said, Father, I bless this couple. I see your kingdom coming in their lives. I know that's the cry of their hearts. Thank you, Lord. I see the path for a great distance, great long distance. It's pretty smooth. My wife and I looked at each other. Thank you, Jesus. I don't know how rough it's going to be afterward. The Lord has given you a smooth path now. He wants your foundations to be strong. Don't mistake the smooth path as him not speaking to you because he is. He's going to establish you in these days. There's a work down the road I'm not seeing. I don't know what it is, but first be established in him. And my wife and I just looked at each other and we just said, thank you, Lord. I felt like Esther as King Xerxes extended the scepter, come in. What do you want? Up to half my kingdom is yours. Can you receive that this morning? That the Father, as you are seeking him, would say to you, what do you want? What do you need, my child? Up to half my kingdom. Can you stand with me right now? Can you allow the Holy Spirit to just minister to you? through his word here. This kind of opposition can only be overcome by prayer. You can't do it. You're not smart enough. You're not strong enough. You don't have enough endurance. But this is all on Jesus, our king. Sam, can we dim the light? Father, we are your humbled servants. We are like that Esther standing right now in your throne room. Extend to us your scepter. Have compassion upon us, Jesus, please. No matter what opposition we face, God, don't allow the devil to separate us and, and, and cut us off from our only source, which is you, Jesus. Don't allow us to harbor anger or bitterness. Don't allow us to push you away. God, come to our rescue. Speak tenderly to us. Up to half my kingdom. What is it you need? God, we are here. We feel so helpless, but we know this, that this is when our God can do the impossible with a mustard seed of faith. And that's all we have to offer you this morning, God, in this prayer, is that mustard seed of faith. That's it. It's not much. We are choosing to stand on your truth it feels kind of slippery right now. But the truth is, your truth is true. And that's why we're choosing to stand on it. Remove the fear. Remove the doubt. And to you, Jesus, alone, right now we cling. Make a way where there seems to be no way. Waymaker.
miracle worker, promise keeper, light in my darkness, come to my aid. Defeat the enemy for me, oh God, please. You are so good. We declare this truth. You are so loving, unfailing, merciful, faithful, just, true. You never fail. Come to my aid. Now, God.